Greetings and welcome to episode 38 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is cultural reform. All right, more specifically, we're going to be talking about cultural reform as it was mediated through the educational system and by extension how it was uh, how it was embodied in the script reform, the reform of the Chinese script. Uh, for any of you who have pay attention to these sorts of issues or have taken Chinese language classes, you are probably aware that there are actually two forms of the Chinese script today. There are what are referred to as simplified character, jian ti zi, and there are what is referred to as traditional characters or complex characters, fan ti zi. For the last 2,000 years, a fairly standardized version of fan ti zi, traditional or complex characters, has been the mainstay in the government bureaucracy, in the civil service examinations, in literature, uh, anywhere where literacy is present. And a very ma major change occurred under the communist era, under the Mao era specifically, because there have not been any reforms of the Chinese script since Mao died. There have been proposals, but these have not been implemented. Um, but this is a fairly major change, you know. There's a huge reform, uh, transformation that takes place of the Chinese script itself. Now, it's not unprecedented. If you go all the way back to the oracle bones, I mean, if we're talking about 3,000 years of the Chinese script, then there have been many times in which the script has evolved. Or by government order, there has been a major change in which they say, you know what, we can standardize some of the forms of the script, we can uh, delete some of these, we can change the way these ones look, and it'll, you know, there'll, there'll, there'll be some practical utility in doing so. It'll make the running of the paperwork and the bureaucracy uh, more smooth, whatever it might be. Or we have many different regions that we've incorporated into our new uh, empire, and we'd like to get rid of variant characters so that we're all using the same version of the script. Okay. Um, in the 1950s, however, you get a, a the the latest, and one might argue one of the more drastic overhauls of the Chinese script that we have yet seen. Um, so that's our topic today, education and script reform under Mao. And as I said before in a previous episode, this is the real cultural reform, all right? The cultural revolution, uh, contrary to its name, is more about politics than it is about culture, although obviously there's going to be some cultural change there as well. Uh, but it's during the 1950s that you see your biggest shift and the, the very underpinnings of the educational system and ideological system in China. And these legacies are still with us today. Okay, so and when you're talking about transforming the educational system, all right, why do the communists, after they come to power, why do they feel like they need to change the system that's in place? I mean, obviously, they have inherited the longest continuous legacy of a society, a civilization, a government, that places huge importance on literacy and education, okay? We have the most august history, the most prestigious history of valuing literacy in the history of the world. Well, what do we need to change? Well, there's a couple things. Uh, I would say that the motivations are both practical and ideological. From a practical perspective, they're saying we need to make education serve the needs of industrial production, all right? Production. We are a relatively agrarian nation. Communism wasn't supposed to take root in an agrarian nation like this, and we need to hurry up um, and industrialize very, very quickly. Remember the Great Leap Forward, catch up with steel production with Great Britain in 15 years. We need to do this very, very fast. 
Okay, And while the educational system may have served the old feudal exploitative society quite well, uh, we're trying to create a new society, one that is less exploitative, one that is more uh, equal. Okay, um, And so our Chinese script doesn't serve that practical purpose very well, and we need to change it. We need to change it. Now, from an ideological perspective, you're saying we need to redistribute the means by which people gain access to the advantages conferred by education. All right, you're not just saying education needs to be shifted uh, practically so that we have more engineering majors, for example, and not so many history and philosophy majors. Um, we also want to change the way that higher education works so that we can get more people in university. Okay, studying the sort of things that are of more practical utility um, so that it's not just this tiny 1% of the population that is dominating education and the benefits, career benefits that then flow from that education as had been the case for thousands of years. Remember that civil service examination system was revolutionary um, in being an ostensibly anonymous meritocracy. But nonetheless, in practice, we know, we saw in an earlier episode of this podcast, we saw that in practice, okay, only rich people, could, only wealthy people who had disposable income could afford to educate their kids to the extent that they would need in order to have any hope of passing the exams whatsoever, okay? In theory, it was open to most of society. In practice, it was closed, to most of society. These are the things from a practical perspective and an ideological perspective that the communists are saying, we're going to change, we're going to change, we're going to make education and the Chinese script serve a new purpose for a new society that we're creating that is more equal and less exploitative. Okay, let's begin with the educational system, the institutions of education. Okay, now here are the inspirations going to come from the Soviet Union. In the 1950s, so much will come from the Soviet Union. It's something that's easy to lose sight of because uh, Russia will sort of fade eventually after about 10 years of a um, alliance with the Soviet Union. Uh, there's going to be what we know as the Sino-Soviet split. It occurs roughly during the Great Leap Forward. Um, and eventually the Soviets say, you know, we don't trust Mao. Uh, we don't feel comfortable giving him the blueprints for an atomic bomb anymore. Um, and there's a lot of geopolitical conflict between the two countries along their borders. And they'll become quite open enemies by the middle of the 1960s. That's referred to as the Sino-Soviet split. Now, at an elite level, behind the curtains where the politicians do their job, the Sino-Soviet alliance had always been quite cold. All right, Mao and Stalin. Mao didn't like Stalin at all. Uh, the communists constantly complained about how behind the scenes, the Russians were still being imperialists. They were still dominating Mongolia. They were still trying to assert their economic prerogatives in Xinjiang, in Manchuria, along the northern borders where the Soviets still had some presence and they had land borders that connected with China. All right, at an elite level, the archives now tell us that the relationship was always frigid. Okay, however... In the public sphere, at the popular level, the 1950s, there was no better friend to your average Chinese citizen. There was no better friend or model or inspiration for the new society that you wanted to create in China than the Soviet Union. The Russians were seen, they were held up on a pedestal as the most advanced socialist nation. Whatever they do, that's our starting point. That's our reference point for what we're going to do. We might tweak their model a little bit. But they set the gold standard, and that's where we work from. Okay, so in the 1950s, 
if you were studying a foreign language in China, you were probably studying Russian. Okay? Russian language studies skyrockets in the 1950s. All right? Um, you are, um, uh, if you're going to study overseas, you're probably going to Moscow to study in a Russian, in a Soviet university. And if you're going to the bookstore or the cinema, you're probably going and seeing books that are translated into Chinese from Russian. You're reading Russian authors, okay? And that could include both socialist uh, socialist authors and pre-socialist authors. You know, they would just have an appropriate forward that would say, oh, you know, or preface that would say before... Uh, socialism finally uh, uh, managed to take over the country and uh, bring us to, to a better future, on the path to a better future. Uh, these were uh, authors during the feudal era who were already anticipating that change. Okay, you'd have things like that. Um, so, Soviet education, Soviet language, Soviet study abroad, Soviet books, um, uh, uh, Soviet movies, now, when movies were shown, you think, well, what are we going to show? We can't show American capitalist Hollywood films. That's totally ideologically unacceptable. Um, well, the Soviets. Let's show what the Soviets have. That's that that's acceptable. All right. Ideologically, we don't have to worry about this. This is going to be good, solid socialist content. Okay. So during the 1950s, Russia, the Soviet Union, is everywhere in China. And after the Sino-Soviet split, that will gradually begin to recede. Until today, um, this is a topic, this is a phenomenon that's very easy to forget, actually, if you haven't gone out of your way to study it. All right, so what is the Soviet model in, in terms of an educational model? Um, well, what you want to have is you want to cultivate, you want to rear an elite group of technocrats who will govern the country, um, uh, march towards the progress of industrial development in a scientific, rational manner, Okay. However, the PRC has very few intellectuals in its party, unlike the Soviet Union. The Soviets, the Bolsheviks, they maintained an urban intellectual base continuously. They always had an urban intelligentsia. Okay? The Chinese Communist Party didn't have that. Remember, we knew that in the 1920s and even for a while in the 1930s, um, there were, the Chinese Communist Party was originally in the cities. They were mercilessly persecuted by the nationalists, but they were in the cities. They didn't have a whole lot of success. And the people who held the highest positions in the party hierarchy were urban intellectuals who had studied abroad in Moscow and come back and had Stalin's blessing. All right? And Mao was fighting against these people, competing with these people to gain power within the Chinese Communist Party. All right. Um, now, what changes we already know is that the Communist Party has to leave the cities and go out into the rural countryside. Now, some of the urban intelligentsia follow them, but many don't or are killed. And they gradually get replaced by more and more peasant leaders, largely illiterate, uneducated peasant leaders in the, in the late 1920s, the 1930s, and especially the 1940s, when the Chinese Communist Party is based in rural Yan'an in northern Shanxi province. All right, this is when their recruitment base largely comes from the countryside. And so, although some of the top leaders, like Zhou Enlai, Mao Zedong, uh, will have an educational background that you would say, oh, he's intelligentsia, he is someone who's highly educated, whether formally or informally, okay, um, much of the rank and file in the Communist Party and many of the people who will rise to prominent positions after the 1940s were actually originally peasants, okay, and this is going to be starkly different than the case in the Soviet Union. 
All right, one of my favorite books for the Mao era, and I recommend all of you read it if you're interested in, in, in reading a, a good book on this era, is um, uh, written by Mao's private doctor, Li Jiusui, called The Private Life of Chairman Mao in English. Uh, Mao Zedong Yisheng Siren Huilu in Chinese. Uh, banned in China now because it paints such a horrible por portrait of Mao Zedong, but uh, most historians believe that it's fairly reliable in the majority of its content. Um, you can really sense this tension all the time with someone like Dr. Li. Uh, Dr. Li is educated uh, uh, largely abroad. Uh, you know, I think he's in, uh, he might have even gone to an American school, or it's an American missionary school in uh, Beijing, where, where he grows up from a wealthy family. He can afford basically a foreign education, uh, works abroad in Australia, and comes back to China after 1949, and he's shocked at all the peasants who are in power. Um, and most of them have, you know, a, an elementary school education at best if they have any education at all. And in his memoirs, you're constantly seeing him butt heads with people who are so much less educated than he is. Um, and some of it's very humorous. Uh, you know, at the time, obviously, it was very frustrating for him. But you can see this clash of highly educated versus very paltry educated people within the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, um, so what the communists need in the 1950s, one of the central tensions that you're going to see is they need to train a specialized class of technocrat cadres. They need people who are trained in the hard sciences, highly trained in the hard sciences, because that's what you need to build factories and tractors and aircraft carriers and nuclear bombs. All right. I love history. I think it's one of the best things in the world to study. But historians and philosophers and professors of literature aren't going to get it done. They aren't going to get the work of socialist industrial construction done. All right. And so these subjects will be devalued during the communist era. And I would argue all the way up until today. Okay. The the, most of the humanities um, have still not recovered today. Okay, history and philosophy and literature, those used to be uh, the queen of the king of all educational subjects in the old society. That's what you studied when you studied for the civil service examination system and they get a job in the imperial bureaucracy. You studied Confucian essays. All right, you studied ancient literature. All right, that's the stuff that you studied. Philosophy, history, literature. That was what was imagined to make up the components of a educated gentleman who could be a leader of other men and was fit to go out and serve the empire as a local magistrate. Okay, and that's the case all the way up until the, you know 1905 when the civil service exams are abolished. Okay, um, that's one of the major shifts that occurs culturally, educationally over the past 70 years of communist rule in China is the shift towards uh, Soviet-style technocrats who are educated in the hard sciences, in things like engineering, all right, and philosophy, history, literature, have not recovered, all right? They, very few people study these things, and when they do, they aren't seen to have nearly as much prestige as something like engineering. All right, so the old system that was sort of uh, developed by foreigners, uh, American, British, French missionaries, and philanthropic organizations and whatnot, um, during the first five decades of the 20th century, um, was what we might refer to as the comprehensive university. You study everything. All right? The idea was is that uh, a well-rounded gentleman still is important, and uh, as such, he's still going to study history, philosophy, and literature. Of course, now he's also going to study the underpinnings 
of modern science and math and all these sorts of things. Uh, but still, that should have equal weight with, you know, sort of the soft humanities. All right, literature, culture, philosophy, these sorts of things. That's a comprehensive university. All right, and the model that was most admired at the time was the American model. All right, the curriculum that many new Chinese universities, often with overt American assistance, financial assistance, administrative assistance, professors who would go abroad and whatnot, um, was the American comprehensive university system, something like Harvard. Okay, the top intellectuals, the top professors at major Chinese universities during the nationalist era. Most of them all went to American colleges. They went to places like Cornell and Harvard and Columbia. All right, and then they came back, and they were seen as very prestigious for having gone to these colleges. Now, the critique of this system, the comprehensive American uh, you know, liberal arts university, was that it can create intellectual stars, but it tends to perpetuate the socioeconomic gap between the high achievers, the winners and the losers of a capitalist society. The winners are truly spectacular, but it's only a, hands, a small handful of those while everyone else lags behind. This sort of stress on individual cultivation was viewed as selfish and wasteful, and it diverted resources from production. The new model, the Soviet model, is going to emphasize practical sciences and access to everyone. Okay, so instead of the American university, we're going to import a new model in the 1950s, what we might refer to as the Polytechnic Soviet Academy. Okay, and in the Polytechnic Soviet Academy, you are learning uh, uh, various forms of engineering, of chemistry, of math. These are the things that are essential for the construction of an industrial society. Okay, at Tsinghua University. Or no, sorry, uh, Tsinghua University will become one of the most prominent of these universities. However, at all Chinese universities, from 1947 to 1965, your engineering majors go from 23,000 to 292,000 people majoring in engineering. That's a 12-fold increase if you're doing your math there. During the same time period, only an 18-year period, okay, the number of students who are in university as a whole goes from 130,000 to 645,000. That's a five-fold increase. So engineering majors increase by 12, whereas all students in universities increase by five. So by far, engineering majors, that's where the new prestige is going to go. Engineering goes from 18% of all majors to 45% of all majors. That's almost half of everyone who's in college is studying some field of engineering. That's an astonishing shift. And that shift is still in evidence today. Okay, education now must serve industrial production. The exact opposite of the underpinnings and the, and, and the, the, the ideological basis of classical education for most, for all of Chinese history prior to the 20th century. Okay, um, now... Sort of to illustrate this shift, I want to read out a few excerpts from textbooks. I was able to pick up some flea markets, these old uh, textbooks from the Mao era. Now, the textbook that I was able to get, it's a math textbook, uh, dates specifically from 1970. All right, 1970, that's Cultural Revolution, so obviously that's a little bit later and whatnot than the period we're talking about here. But nonetheless, it still sort of uh, captures the feeling, <laughs> all right, uh, the cultural tenor of the new examples and what you're supposed to be studying uh, at this time. Why are you studying math and whatnot? Okay, all right, here's one question pulled at random from this math textbook that I found from 1970. 
I've translated these myself uh, from, from the Chinese. Num number one, Chairman Mao says, quote, the imperialists have already fallen into a crisis from which they cannot recover. In 1959, the U.S. national debt was $2.8 billion. By 1969, it had increased to $3.6 billion. In 10 years, how much did the American imperialist debt increase? All right, great one. Um, what's the next one here? The Nanjing Yangtze Bridge. The bridge built over the Yangtze River in the city of Nanjing. Here's another question. Entirely designed and built by ourselves, that's self-sufficiency self for you, has already begun to allow vehicles to pass over it. This is a great victory for Mao Zedong thought. If the, Nan, if, if the Nanjing Yangtze Bridge is 6,700 meters long and the Wuhan Yangtze Bridge is 1,670 meters long, then how many times greater is the length of the Nanjing Bridge over the Wuhan Bridge? Please estimate to, please estimate to the nearest 0.01 of a meter. Okay, um, question number four. During the war to liberate Tianjin, the Great People's Liberation Army killed, injured, and captured a total of 26,513 people. If the number of people killed is X and the number of those captured is 22 times the number of those killed, equating to Y, then how many people were injured? Let X equal 1,100 and Y equal 522, then answer the total number of killed, captured, and injured. And my favorite, Chairman Mao says, quote, our, historical, our current historical era is the one in which the imperialist system will crumble. In order to protest the reactionary rule of the Nixon government, American workers have undertaken an unprecedented and massive work stoppage. In 1970 alone, electrical, steel, and airline workers on strike totaled 198,500 people. If the electrical workers on strike numbered 3,000 less than 42 times the number of airline workers, and if the steel workers on strike numbered 500 numbered 500 less than 13 times the number of airline workers, what are the respective numbers of each striking segment of workers? <laughs> I love these. All right, you can see the recurrent emphasis on politics and on industrial production and the workers who are involved in that industrial production. All right, you can see here, if you're reading, if you're going through this math textbook in 1970, you're, you're, you're thinking that the American labor system is in danger of imminent collapse. The workers are rising up, they're going on strike. You're taking pride in the fact that you that the Chinese have built their own bridge over the Yangtze River. And the math questions revolve around that. Engineering is everywhere. It permeates these things. Okay. Now, what is the new student body going to look like? Remember, it's not just that education needs to serve practical industrial needs. You also want to get more people into this educational system than previously had access to it. Okay, the new student body is going to be composed somewhat more. There's going to be more attempts to try to admit poorly educated people from the countryside. Okay, previously, when you know, right when the communists take power in the early 1950s, most people who have the education that you desire, all right, the technical expertise, the engineering majors, the astrophysicists, all right, all these sorts of people. Um, where did they get their education from? Well, they probably didn't get it in China, or if they did get it in China, they probably got it from a foreign-run missionary school. Okay, so here's the paradox, or not paradox, here's the tension in the 1950s. You want to build a socialist society. You need a proletariat, you need factories, you need an industrial work base. Okay, who's going to build that for you? The people who already have engineering degrees and astrophysicist degrees. That's where you're going to, you know, nuclear physicists. People are going to build an atomic bomb for you. Well, these people, though, were educated abroad and before 1949. 
So although they have the, in, the, the brain skills that you want, you don't trust them politically. They aren't communists, most likely. Okay? So you, you might hire them, but you don't trust them. And every single time there's some sort of a political campaign going on, they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to being called out for supposed loyalties to capitalist countries. Or perhaps they were associated with the nationalists prior to 1949. Or they have a wealthy background. Their parents are wealthy. How else could they have afforded, uh, uh, been able to afford to get an education? That's bad. Okay, that's all bad after 1949. What you want are people who come from a good class background. They're, they're people who you can imagine are going to be more politically reliable. Uneducated, poor, preferably from the rural areas where the Chinese Communist Party uh, rose to power. All right. What's the problem with that constituency? It's going to take a long time to train them. All right. You got to get them into the cities. And then they, have, they probably don't even have an elementary school education yet. So you've got a tall order. You've got a big hill to climb up in order to get those people an education. So you might think of it this way. Okay. The central tension of the 1950s in the realm of education is you're trying to create people who are more what we might think of as politically red. Red being the color of communism, of course, all right? Uh, you want people who are more red, politically reliable. But it's going to take time to produce those people. In the meantime, you have experts. Politically, they're unreliable. They aren't red. But you need them until you've managed to train your first generation of homegrown red experts. All right. Eventually, when you get to the Cultural Revolution, after the communists have been in power for about one generation, you know, 15 to 25 years, you finally have your first generation of homegrown youth coming of age. They've been educated in a Soviet-style polytechnic university. They're engineering majors. They have the expertise that you need. And they're politically reliable because they grew up in the Mao era. Okay? Until then, however... You have this, you know, very central tension that we see in Dr. Lee's memoirs, you know, the, the private doctor of Chairman Mao, in which he is called from Australia. He comes back from Australia with all this foreign expertise and medical expertise that he's culled from foreigners prior to 1949. And who are you going to hire when you want to have someone to, to, to look after Chairman Mao's personal health? That's one of the most important jobs in the country. Mao himself isn't going to entrust this to someone who is illiterate and uneducated and yet, you know, is a master in traditional Chinese medicine. No, he still wants the expert. But where are you going to get an expert like that under the circumstances? It's going to be someone who's politically unreliable. And so, so much of Leisure Sway's uh, uh, travails in the 1960s and 70s comes from the fact that he is one of the most highly educated, best doctors in all of China. And therefore, he's useful, he's indispensable, they need him, but politically, no one trusts him because of his background with a, a, a wealthy family, his ties to foreign capitalist countries abroad, um, and possible ties to the Nationalist Party but prior to 1949. Okay, um, But eventually, this tension between Reds and experts will disappear during the Cultural Revolution when you get your first generation of so-called Red experts coming of age. And there's a wonderful book written on this by, uh, I think he's a sociologist or maybe an anthropologist, Joel Andreas, uh, called Rise of the Red Engineers. And that's sort of where I've called these terms, reds versus experts, and then red experts eventually. 
All right. The people who have led China since the death of the last representative of the revolutionary generation, i.e. Deng Xiaoping dying in 1997, all the leaders of China, the chairman of the Communist Party um, or secretary of the Communist Party, sometimes they have different titles, um, they've all been so-called red experts educated after 1949 in a Soviet-style polytechnic university. It means they're experts in the preferred subject of study to build a new socialist society, an industrial society in China, which is so important to catch up with the industrialized nations of the world, and yet they're also politically reliable because they grew up after 1949 and they have no foreign contacts to capitalist countries, pre-49 associations, nationalist party associations. All right, don't believe me? Go to the Wikipedia pages and look up Jiang Zemin. He's the guy who succeeded Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao after him, or uh, uh, Xi Jinping today. All of them have some sort of an engineering degree from a prestigious university in Shanghai or Beijing, Tsinghua University, Beijing University, uh, Fudan University. It's going to be one of those really prestigious ones. And they studied, you know, chemical engineering, hydraulic engineering, some form of engineering. It's very different. When you think about like, you know, what is the basis for a political career in the United States? Usually it's law uh, and a little more rarely um, the military. The vast majority of U.S. presidents uh, were lawyers first. They studied law. Okay. And then there's a minority who were military leaders. They served in the military. They were a decorated veteran. And then they ran for office. And only recently do we now have our first person who totally breaks this mold and is sort of a, 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 a public social media celebrity, <laughs> all right? But that's very new and that's very different. For most of uh, the U.S. history, it's been law or the military, okay? That's not the case. Have we ever had someone who became president and you look at their background and it was chemical engineering? No. <laughs> so if you want to understand why that's the case with the last three leaders of China, well, this explains it for you. Um, okay, now, that's the shift in the institutions of higher education, okay? Um, let's talk about Chinese language reform. As I said before, you may or may not be aware that there is a major schism, a major linguistic schism among the worldwide Chinese community, and very few people know the details of how this change, this, this, this rupture in the Chinese script today came about. Now, in the old days, uh, in imperial Chinese history, whenever there was a major script overhaul, um, it was the entire Chinese-speaking world uh, partook of that change, okay? What's the difference now is that there's been a major um, transformation of the Chinese script, and yet it has not uniformly affected the entire Chinese-speaking world in the way that previous script reforms had. Okay, because as I've already sort of foreshadowed for you, there's, you still have traditional characters in use by everyone in Taiwan, uh, most people in Hong Kong, and the overseas Chinese community. Think about that too. Okay, originally, most of the Chinese who left China and emigrated to the rest of the world, all those Chinatowns everywhere, they came from southern China, most of them, and they came in the 19th century and prior to 1949. Okay, which means that they learned the old traditional complex forms of the characters that have been around for thousands of years. All right. When you go to a Chinese restaurant anywhere in the world outside of China, all right, when you go to a Chinese restaurant up until very, very recently, almost all of the menus and the store signs would be in traditional Chinese. They'd be in the old Chinese characters. And most of them still are today. 
And the people inside usually would also speak Cantonese <laughs> or one of the southern Chinese dialects, uh, dialects, languages, um, mutually unintelligible languages, and they would be using traditional characters. Okay, it's only very recently in the past 10 years or so with sort of uh, the rise of China again once more as this major economic powerhouse and the rise of this, you know, large upper middle class uh, 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 cohort of Chinese who are able to go abroad and start to flex their economic muscles, um, that you begin to see simplified characters, which have only existed for the past 60 years or so, um, you finally start to see simplified characters being disseminated and take root abroad to cater to the, 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 the economic power of the new mainland tourists, immigrants, whatever they might be, for whatever purpose, diplomats, uh, students in universities abroad, Okay, they're all using simplified characters now, and they are gradually, you know, pushing aside those traditional characters in favor of simplified characters. Now, what is the difference between the two? If you don't know Chinese, it's going to be kind of hard to understand this. It's, it's, it's not totally mutually incomprehensible. All right, it's not like the spoken forms of Chinese. All right, we're like Cantonese and Northern Mandarin are totally incomprehensible. You cannot have a conversation with each other with those two languages. The differences between simplified script and traditional script aren't quite as stark as that. All right, you can muddle your way through. If you've only studied traditional and you are confronted with a, a, you know, a paragraph of simplified characters, you'll stumble a bit. There'll be some words you can't get and you're like, what the hell is that? They really changed that one. I've never seen that before. Oh, this, I recognize part of it. I can see how they changed it. It'll be a halting, stumbling effort the first couple times you do it. And there'll be some words that you don't recognize at all. But you'll probably get the general meaning and very likely a very specific meaning just from context. And you'll start piecing it together. Okay? Um, it's not mutually unintelligible. That said, the difference is bigger than, let's say, the difference between written British English and written American English. Remember, you know, if you read a lot of English published in, 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 in the United Kingdom, you'll have variant spellings, you know, the O-U instead of just an O. You'll have words that are different, loo versus, you know, bathroom or, whatever, you know, these sorts of things, lorry versus truck, and you'll stumble over it. But, you know, no, it's bigger than that. All right, it's bigger than the difference between written English in different parts of the English-speaking world, but it's not to the point of mutual incomprehensibility. I've seen this firsthand with my own wife. My wife grew up in Taiwan. She learned exclusively traditional characters. We lived for a year in Beijing. We took our one-year-old daughter to Beijing when I was doing dissertation research in 2009 to 2010, and I saw firsthand, quite amusingly sometimes, how my wife would learn to read the simplified characters. And like I said, the best way I can describe it is a halting, stumbling effort, but you eventually get there. <laughs> okay, you eventually get there. And it also is said, and I'm not a native speaker of Chinese, so I can't really say this, but it is said in general, that it's easier to pick up simplified characters if you've already learned traditional first, but if you studied simplified characters first, it can be kind of a chore. It can take a while to learn the traditional characters, but if you put enough effort into it, obviously you'll be able to do it. Okay, so that's the difference now. Both of these are mixed together all over the world now, especially outside of China. Uh, it can be confusing. In overseas Chinese communities, you can see both of these forms of the script used in the exact same place. All right. And oftentimes, if you see uh, traditional versus simplified characters, you can immediately identify 
where that person probably came from. Oh, this person definitely grew up in Taiwan or Hong Kong because they use this form of the script. Oh, it's obvious this person grew up somewhere on the mainland because they use this form of the script. Okay. All right. Now, how did this come about? The simplification of Chinese characters was, just like with the transformation of the university system, it was intended to serve the purpose of both pragmatism and ideology. The idea was, if we simplify the Chinese characters, we will increase access to education among the masses, more people will be able to be, be literate, and we can shrink the educational gap between the classes. Okay? And the idea was, is that simplifying Chinese characters can help save students time in school, and if they don't have to go to school so long to study Chinese characters, then they'll be able to contribute quicker and more often to industrial production or agricultural production. If you're thinking about, you know, needing to uh, contribute to primitive accumulation, like we talked about in the Great Leap Forward episode. And it was often said, and this, of course, there was no way to prove this, but it was often said, all right, that the Chinese characters required an additional two years of schooling in order to master at the equivalent level of, let's say, some Western script, or any foreign script. All right, I've never seen any study that actually proved that, uh, but that was a widely quoted saying. You know, it said, you know, you need we 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 are wasting two additional years of having our workforce in schools because of the unique nature of the Chinese script. Okay, and so the Chinese script began to be viewed as an obstacle to literacy. This is very different. This is a major cultural shift that's going on. And this actually predates 1949 for much of the 20th century. Right? For much of the 20th century, uh, the Chinese script had been in, in the, increasingly the target of critical attacks that said, you know what, we tried everything else and we still couldn't catch up to the Western powers. We still couldn't ail what was wrong with us. It must be culture. What is the most visible manifestation of Chinese culture? It's our unique script. Now, for so long, Chinese took pride in the script. It was the most beautiful thing there was, and it was so unique. It was thought of, you know, aesthetically, it was a work of art all in itself. And they took great pride in having this awesome script. That pride will diminish among many people in the early 20th century, as Chinese intellectuals increasingly wonder, what else can we change? What else can we identify as being wrong with us that'll help us catch up with the foreigners? We've tried everything. It must be our script. It must be our script. Now, there were proposed solutions that, uh, to deal with the script long before the communists came to power in the 1950s. Okay, in fact, in the 19th century, you already had Western missionaries who were saying, you know what, this Chinese script is very cumbersome. There's all kinds of so-called dialects, mutually unintelligible languages, in, especially in southern China. Um, and yet there's only this one script that is based on northern Mandarin Chinese. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to disseminate Bibles and they wanted to make converts to Christianity. And they said, this isn't working that well. We need to be able to write the Bible in a form of script that reflects the local languages here in the South. And so they came up with ideas of how we're going to make a phonetic system, an alphabetic phonetic system, to represent the sounds of various different Chinese languages that subvert Chinese characters altogether. And they produced Bibles in various Chinese languages that used no Chinese characters whatsoever. 
they devised an alphabetic system that represents the phonemes, the sounds of the syllables in these various Chinese languages. Okay, and there were other proposals. This wasn't the only one. There were other proposals eventually towards the late 19th century and early 20th century when you start getting Chinese intellectuals too who are starting to repudiate the past. Chinese intellectuals are also saying, you know what? We need to start thinking about uh, uh, plans to uh, uh, abolish the Chinese script and replace it with something that's more practical. The classical Chinese script only worked for the old society when you could devote your entire first 30 years of your life to studying it. Uh, now we need, a, we need a script for everyone. And this is an encumbrance. It's hindering our ability to make our nation literate. And so there were other proposals for different types of phonetic aids, preferably ones that didn't use a Western alphabet. You're not going to take pride in importing someone else's alphabet and replacing your own uh, Chinese script with that. In 1913, the system that is known as the Juin Fuhao system, all right, literally, um, you know, look at the sound and piece it together by symbols is what that means. In 1913, they created the, the, the Juin Fuhao system, which was a way of coming up with, you know, 30 or 40 alphabetic symbols that in practice looked a lot like the Chinese, uh, Chinese, the Japanese alphabet. Um, if you listen to, you know, podcast episode two or three, when I talked about East Asian languages, um, you know, we, you learned that in Japanese, there are three different forms of script. There are the kanji, Chinese characters, often used for major verbs and nouns. But in order to express much of the rest of complex Japanese grammar, they developed katakana and hirakana, together just known as the kana scripts. These are syllabic alphabets in which the symbols that are being used are not Western letters. They themselves are a series of strokes that are derived from the stroke mechanisms of Chinese characters, but are far simpler. One, two, at max, three strokes. A stroke being, you know, one movement of the hand to, to create one element of a character. You know, most are like two, two strokes. Some are one, maybe three at the most. Whereas, you know, a Chinese character, a typical Chinese character can have 15, 20, 25 strokes per character. Each character represents one syllable. Okay, and this system, this Juin Fuhao system introduced in 1913, it was adopted for dictionaries. One of the important things was, you know, we need to create dictionaries similar to Western dictionaries. Uh, the Kangxi Dictionary and we, uh, is very cumbersome. The old system of having to look up characters by what is known a, as a radical um, was a very cumbersome system for looking up Chinese characters. I can't really explain it to you here over a podcast, but they didn't have the ease of reference in a dictionary that Western alphabetic scripts had. And even today, the problem isn't totally solved. If you study Chinese, uh, the thing you dread the most is having to look up a character that you don't recognize in a dictionary. I still dread that. <laughs> okay, it's not fun. But they will come up with mechanisms that make it somewhat easier. The Juin Fuhao system. Think of it as similar to Japanese hiragana or katakana. Um, that's what they came up with. This is still used in Taiwan today. Because Taiwan will resist the alphabetic system that the communists will introduce in the 1950s, the pinyin system, uh, for obvious ideological reasons. Um, but if you go to Taiwan and you buy a dictionary, um, it's going to have the Juin Fuhao system, uh, which means you need to learn a whole new alphabetic script in order to look up Chinese characters in a dictionary. Or in children's books, they'll put the Juin Fuhao system right above the characters when three or four-year-old kids in Taiwan are learning how to read for the first time. That's the system that they will use. Okay. Um, now, that was merely seen as an aid to the Chinese scripts, script, okay? 
There were other people who were saying, we don't just want an alphabetic aid to help with pronunciation and dictionaries. We want to replace the Chinese script entirely with a new alphabetic script. Get rid of the characters entirely. All right, after the, 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 the new culture movement in the 19-teens, the May 4th movement, there are lots of people who are saying the Chinese script is the problem. It's simply not compatible with modernity, with an industrial society. There's a wonderful book that came out a year or two ago by Thomas Mullaney, um, professor of history, Chinese history at Stanford University. It's called simply The Chinese Typewriter. I highly recommend it. All right, wonderful book. And in this book, Mullaney is showing how Chinese intellectuals uh, for many of the first decades of the 20th century were diagnosing the Chinese script as the source of China's ills, our cultural backwardness. This is the reason we're falling behind the West because we have a script that prevents us from embracing modernity. And the greatest symbol of Western technological uh, literate modernity was the typewriter. The Western typewriter was seen as this ingenious invention that revolutionized office work, paperwork, the production of knowledge, and the preservation and recording and dissemination of knowledge itself. The typewriter was so wonderful. And I said, how come we can't make a typewriter for Chinese? Because we have three, 4,000 characters that are in common use. You can't have three, 4,000 keys on a typewriter. And so it was, they, people anguished at the inability to create a Chinese typewriter that looked anything like a Western typewriter. And when they couldn't come up with a way to square the Chinese script, to conform the Chinese script with a Western-style typewriter, they said, our script itself is deficient. It has a problem with it. It's a backward element of our culture that needs to go. All right, for more on that, go get Mulaney's book, The Chinese Typewriter, but it's a fascinating story, and it's part of our story about people diagnosing what's wrong with China. It must be our culture because we tried to reform everything else, um, and within the culture, the script looms largest. Now, the nationalists, when they came to power in the 1920s and 1930s, they repudiated all, they, they repudiated all of this. Many of their top officials were once part of the new culture on May 4th movement, and they also were enthusiastically talking about plans to abolish the Chinese script. But then they backtracked, they backpedaled on that, and when Chiang Kai-shek comes to power, he represents this more conservative faction of the party, and they say, no, 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 that's not the problem with China. We should take pride in our past. Confucianism is a good thing. That's a great ideology. Our, our Chinese script, is, there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. We just need to unify the country, get the foreigners out, and we'll be fine. But our script is not the problem. Okay. And so many of the proposals were shelved by Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists in the 1920s and the 1930s, although they too accepted using Juin Fu Hao as a, 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 an aid, uh, namely, uh, chiefly in dictionaries, uh, trying to find Chinese characters, and they would take the Juin Fu Hao system with them to Taiwan. Okay. Now, when the nationalists come to power in 1949, they immediately say, we're going to go much farther than the nationalists ever did. We're not reactionaries like them. We're not conservative reactionaries. We are, you know, going full steam ahead. We are progressive reformers. And we're going to take up that, we're going to take up that torch of the May 4th, the new cultural reformers. And yes, the Chinese script has problems. It's not suitable to educate hundreds and hundreds of millions of illiterate peasants in, you know, record time. We need to educate them fast. We need to get them into factories. We need to get them into universities. We're wasting too much time with this old cumbersome script. We're going to change some things. Mao in 1951 said, quote, the written language must be reformed. 
We must proceed in the direction of phoneticization being taken by all languages of the world. And there were some questions still. Are we just going to come up with a new writing aid, a new pronunciation aid, a new version of Juin Fu Hao? Or are we going to get rid of the Chinese script entirely in favor of some sort of new alphabetic script that we're going to create or import? And so for the first six years, from 1949 to 1955, three major issues were debated. All right, these issues were, um, we're going to create a new alphabetic script. It's not going to be Juin Fu Hao. That's still kind of cumbersome, and the nationalists use it. We're not going to use that. We need a new alphabetic uh, uh, pronunciation aid for Chinese characters. And then as an extension of that question, how far are we going to push that? Are we going to replace Chinese entirely with a new alphabetic script that we create from scratch? Okay, some people wanted to. Some people wanted to. Second, I said, we need to spread one standard language or dialect, if you will, throughout the country. Okay, this, you know, this confusion that we have outside of China when we talk about Chinese. Okay, uh, oh, I speak Chinese. You know, oh, do you speak Chinese? I'm studying Chinese. Um, there's a lot in that term that we need to unpack. And if you've listened to earlier podcasts, you've heard me talk about this, but many of you haven't, so we still need to talk about it. All right, there are hundreds of so-called dialects in within the territorial boundaries of present-day China that are within the Sino-Tibetan language family that are nonetheless mutually unintelligible. What we think of as Mandarin Chinese today is largely historically, that's a northern Chinese language within the Chinese language family. And of course, it's related to all the other languages, just like German is related to Norwegian and French is related to Italian. Okay, but can a Frenchman go to Italy and have a conversation with an Italian? No. If they sit down and dissect each word and, the, and their grammar, they'll see a lot of similarities and they might be able to, oh yeah, they recognize that. But they can't have a regular conversation at regular conversational speed. It's a mutually unintelligible language, of course, even though they're very closely related. Same goes for every language in Europe, more or less. China's the exact same way, but we often don't think of it like that. Okay, um, and these are mutually unintelligible languages. And they said, this, isn't, this is not going to work anymore. So we're going to take the language of Beijing, of northern China, and we're going to impose that on everyone else. And this is a process that is coming to fruition today. It begins in the 1950s, and it's coming to fruition today. And you're seeing now even some tensions today. The you know, mainland Chinese press won't report this because of censorship and all that. Uh, but you do see reports of increasing resentment, especially in the, far, in the far southern reaches of China, at the imposition of northern Mandarin Chinese on languages like Shanghainese, Cantonese. All right, In Hong Kong, it's a very touchy issue with the influx of mainland tourists and mainland government officials and all these sort of things. Um, simplified characters are being imposed in Hong Kong and Mandarin Chinese is being uh, imposed. Previously, they all spoke Cantonese. Remember <laughs> my first trip to Hong Kong, I tried to go to a restaurant and I thought I was going to order something and I, all I knew was Mandarin Chinese. Um, and uh, eventually I tried ordering something in Mandarin Chinese and the waiter just looks at me and he says, English, you know, to speak English. Because <laughs> she didn't speak Mandarin. She only spoke Cantonese. So do you want to talk to me? You speak in English. We know English better than we know Mandarin Chinese. Okay. Um, and then finally, the third thing that was debated is that if we're going to keep the Chinese characters, then we're going to simplify them. How are we going to simplify them? 
How many are we going to simplify and by what means are we going to simplify them? We need to reduce the number of strokes, okay? Uh, if we can reduce the number of strokes, people will be able to write and uh, Chinese characters quicker and that will in increase literacy and by extension increase industrial production, okay? Now there wasn't a whole lot of debate on the first two issues. All right, so the national language is going to be the Beijing dialect, basically, Northern Mandarin Chinese, what we speak in the North. It's referred to in Chinese, usually officially, it's referred to as Putonghua, all right, the common language, the language that circulates commonly. Now, the nationalists also had their version of a Putonghua as well, but they call it something different. They call it Guoyu, just literally the national language. But they're referring to the same thing. They're referring to Northern Mandarin Chinese as the, the one language of the uh, uh, very diverse Sino-Tibetan language family that's going to be the language of government, of media, of education, and everyone's going to learn it. Okay? Now, this Putonghua, basically Mandarin Chinese, all right, uh, was particularly targeted at the South, but everywhere throughout China. All right? You go to school... You're going to be uh, 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 learn standard Mandarin Northern pronunciation. You have any interaction with the government, you're going to need to learn to speak Mandarin Chinese. Okay, the radio is going to be in Mandarin Chinese. Uh, television eventually, movies, yes, there'll be Cantonese and other languages too, but these are going to be increasingly devalued in favor of Mandarin Chinese. It's a long process. It's not like it happens overnight. But the beginnings, the impetus, the beginnings of this process are in the 1950s. And I would say by today, they have largely achieved success. Although you can still, if you travel around the country and you find old timers, people who are in their 70s, their 80s, their 90s, and they were educated before the 1950s, um, they're still speaking, you know, Sichuanese, Zhejiangese. All right, they're not speaking Mandarin Chinese, and they're different languages, even though they're all under the Sino-Tibetan language family. Okay. Um, now, what sort of alphabetic script are they going to come up with? Well, instead of Juin Fuhao, which looks a lot like the Japanese scripts, um, they decide to import a Western alphabetic script. All right. It's a socialist country, so there's not a whole lot of shame in importing things that are used in socialist countries, and all the other socialist countries are Western countries. Okay, so they decide, well, we're not going to use Cyrillic. That's too closely associated with the Russians. They decide to adopt a Latin alphabet. Okay, and that's what's known as pinyin, pinyin, all right, pinyin, literally uh, uh, sort of like putting together sounds, all right, put together sounds, and pinyin is an alphabetic script that tells you this is how this character is pronounced, and it's in children's books, when, children, when, 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 when kids are learning how to read Chinese characters for the first time, they learn it through pinyin. This is what took root overseas as well. When I studied studying Chinese, pinyin was already established. This is like 20 years ago. Okay, and I learned pinyin before I learned a Chinese character. Everyone in China learns pinyin before they learn Chinese characters now. And there's not as many letters as there are in the English language alphabet. And some of the letters have a very different pronunciation than they do in English. Uh, some letters like Q and X. Um, these sound very differently uh, when they're pronounced in Chinese. Like uh, X is more like a C sound, an SH kind of a sound. Uh, Q is a Chi sound, so ch ch ch. All right, you know, like that that, that internal life force that animates the world, Chi. Uh, that's spelled Q I in an old transliteration system that would have been spelled C H I. 
All right, there's a few things that are a little bit different like that, um, but this is what's known as pinion. All right, um, it was said that this would also be useful in helping uh, non-Han minority peoples uh, learn Chinese, helping foreigners learn Chinese, but it's also used for the Chinese themselves. You grow up learning pinion. All right. Um, now, the simplification of the Chinese characters. This was hotly debated. This was a touchy issue, because this is the holy grail itself. You change the characters, you're really messing with a, a fundamental part of what it means to be Chinese, that cultural identity. Okay, um, January 1956, this is the birth of simplified characters. They have a draft plan that the linguists come up with in the Communist Party, a draft plan to create 515 Simplified characters. You know, I often say, if you're going to read a newspaper, if you're going to be considered literate in Chinese, to the point where you can read a newspaper, you got to have about 2,000 characters or so. Now, maybe a little bit more than that. You want to read an erudite work of literature, you probably need three to 4,000 characters. All right, a lot of those are one-time use characters, you know, like rare words and whatnot, just like in English. Um, you know, really common characters that you see over and over and over again, just in different combinations. You know, that's going to be just a couple hundred, really. Maybe even, you know, a thousand at most. Okay? And all of these things have different mnemonic devices that help, that aid you, that help you in learning how to pronounce them, even if you don't have a pinyin or a juin fuhao system. Now, in class, I get on the chalkboard and I show you all the different methods that were used uh, to simplify the characters. They're fascinating. All right. Sometimes they would just remove elements of characters. Sometimes they would take the sound of a different character and then import the 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 uh, um, the visual elements of that character and superimpose it on a different character to give you a clue as to the sound. Sometimes they would uh, take the meaning of a different character and then superimpose that part of the character. Sometimes they would just create a new simplified element that instead of having to write you know ten strokes before this new element now that we 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 re replaced on the second half of the script the right half of the script is only two strokes. It's very difficult to explain over audio here, so I'm not even going to try to do it. Um, but in class, I always like to get on the chalkboard and show these sorts of things. Eventually, several thousand characters will be simplified. They will look sometimes just, you know, not much different at all. Only one element's been changed, and it's obvious what it was. Uh, but other times, you know, it's pretty radical, and the character looks completely different, and you need to learn that as a brand new character. Okay, what were the alleged benefits? The alleged benefits were that more people can be literate in a faster amount of time and that time saved in the classroom can be used for more productive labor. What were the criticisms? Well, we actually know that there were criticisms. Why? Because the script reform was first carried out prior to the Hundred Flowers movement and as a subsequent anti-Rightish backlash which followed. In 1957. Remember that when we talked about the Great Leap Forward? There was a period of time in 1956 and 1957 in which Mao, hoping to sort of uh, raise criticisms from outside the party against the people who were trying to go too slow in economic production, uh, he invited criticisms of the party. He thought they would criticize what he wanted them to criticize and that it would help him. They didn't. But at the same time, they took his cues to mean that they could criticize anything. And one of the things that they criticized was simplified characters. And so this is a rare instance in which we have evidence of internal criticism that was levied at a new policy undertaken by the Chinese Communist Party. And even not having archival access to this stuff, we still know what these criticisms were because they were published in the newspapers at the time and we can get access to those. What did people say? What did some intellectuals say about the, uh, the, the new simplified characters? Well, one of them, as they said, there was no need. Quite simply, they said, there's no need for this. You're, you know, you're fixing something that's not broke. There's nothing wrong with the, with the traditional Chinese script. 
The problem is you just need to improve access to education. You don't need to improve the script itself. All right. And of course, at the time, they couldn't have said something like this. But today, this, this criticism actually has a lot of substance behind it. Because you can look at other parts of the Chinese-speaking world, like Taiwan and Hong Kong, and you can say they achieved basically you know, 99.9% literacy in traditional characters. Okay? Which means, clearly, it's not an encumbrance to a wealthy first-world society. Taiwan and Hong Kong are very developed economies now. Uh, considered wealthy countries by most glo global standards. Um, and they achieved basically full literacy among their whole population. That would seem to support the argument that was levied in 1957 um, that says, yeah, the script isn't the problem. The problem was that China was mired in war and poverty and imperialism. That was the problem. Once you solve those problems, the Chinese script isn't a problem anymore. And we can all be literate. And so even in 1957, some people were saying, uh, it's not the script's fault. It's the larger geopolitical and economic conditions. It's, that's the fault. That's where the fault lies. And you fix that, not going to have a problem with education. We can still achieve full literacy. Okay? Some people said the literary heritage had been undermined. They said, we can't read classical works, old works in their original script anymore. You have to print new editions in simplified script just to read our own literature. Some said the aesthetic beauty of them is, is, has disappeared. They quite simply just said the new characters are but ugly. I don't like them. This old script developed more organically and naturally and aesthetically. It was gorgeous. It was a work of art. What have you done to our beautiful Chinese characters? And this is a sentiment that's been revived in the past 20 years or so in which there are some people now, even from mainland China, I've seen it myself, some of my students and whatnot, um, who go out of their way to try to learn traditional characters because they think they're more beautiful <laughs> than the simplified characters that uh, they grew up with. Now, there's other things too, which I can't, again, just like with the chalkboard, I can't really show you unless I can show it to you visually, but there were the, uh, some people criticized that the mnemonic devices had been all muddled up. They said previously, the way the script developed, uh, you didn't have to learn 3,000 characters separately as if they were all individual unique characters. There are mnemonic devices embedded within the script itself that, help, that give you clues to pronunciation. And that's true. Um, and by changing diff you know, different characters, you've messed with this mnemonic system that developed organically. There is an internal system that the characters provide that give you clues to pronunciation. And you, you mess that up by simplifying the characters. And if I had a chalkboard, I'd show you how you messed it up. <laughs> but I can't do it, obviously, over a, po a podcast. What happened to these critics? They were condemned during the anti-Ritus campaign that occurred in the middle of 1957, and they were never heard from again. What is the legacy of simplification? Well, uh, there were several rounds of simplification. As we said, the first round occurred in 1956. That's also when pinyin was introduced. Uh, pinyin and simplification, both 1956. There were a few more rounds of simplification in the late 1950s and the 1960s, but it was over by the Cultural Revolution. This actually is only about a 15-year period, 10-year period, really, in which you have simplified characters being introduced. Okay, They're not going to be repudiated. Even after the arguments for their creation are don't really hold much water anymore, and, and they don't. Okay, Most people would say that there was never any evidence that it took longer to learn Chinese than any other language. Uh, most people would say that it doesn't inhibit your ability to develop a wealthy economy and a modern first-rate industrial country. Just look at Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, there was no problem with those characters at all. It doesn't matter. You're not going to repudiate them. 
because the entire ideological legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party is bound up. It's wrapped up in the simplification uh, uh, process. And it's so profound. You, you, you altered the appearance of the Chinese script so profoundly um, that to repudiate that is a repudiation of your own party. The wisdom of your party. Why did you do this then? If it was all a mistake, why did you do it? So it's not something usually that really gets brought up and debated anymore. The last plan, I think, was um, put into place in 1977, and then it was ultimately retracted, in which they said, you know what, I don't, we don't think it's a good idea to simplify any more characters. What we did during those 10 years, it's a mixed bag, uh, but we're going to leave it as it is. As so many things in history sort of turn out. Uh, in fits and starts, you muddle your way through, and then you don't repudiate what happened before, and you just add one more layer of accretion uh, to the changes and evolution of your society. Okay? Plus, an entire generation grew up with these characters. You can't go back now. Publishing houses often only have uh, uh, printing blocks and simplified characters, and the ancient literature has now been republished in simplified characters as well. Some people, as I said, they like to revive the traditional characters. Oftentimes, traditional characters on the mainland uh, will be used for associations with wealth, tradition, elegance. You go to some fancy high-end boutique store, they might use traditional characters because it sort of, you know, speaks prestige and class and grace and these sort of things. Um, but, you know, that, that, that's a fairly limited usage, all right? Um, the people who are most inconvenienced by all this, if you want to feel sorry for someone, feel sorry for a historian. <laughs> a historian of China like myself, because I have to learn both. I have to learn the characters that modern day scholarship about those ancient periods is written in, and I have to read the original sources themselves in archives, which are not republished in simplified versions. I have to learn to read traditional and simplified. Um, I think now, even abroad, outside of China, simplified is now effectively taken over. Um, when I started learning Chinese, we learned, uh, it was the year 2000, uh, we first learned traditional. There was no choice. They, 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 they imposed traditional on us. I'm grateful for that because I thought it was easier to learn simplified after first learning traditional. Uh, but also our teachers were almost all from Taiwan back then as well. There weren't many mainland teachers. And I learned simplified and uh, traditional in my first year. The second year they gave us an option if you want to switch to, to uh, simplified or traditional. I stayed with traditional because I had already started it and I thought it looked really pretty. Um, and I, I was told, you know, if you later want to learn simplified, it'll be easier if you learn traditional first. And then it all got reinforced when I married my wife and spent a year in Taiwan. Uh, but you know, yeah, picked up simplified, uh, as I went, but, um, you know, everyone studies simplified now. My students at American University and my classes and whatnot, uh, they all study simplified characters and they don't study traditional characters anymore. That is the default because people want us, you know, uh, languages are a reflection of the geopolitical and economic prestige and power of the country that, that they come from. Um, and with the rise of mainland China in the past 20 years, their simplified characters now carry the day in the international arena and are slowly nudging away the traditional characters. Um, and the same goes for pinyin as the preferred transliteration system for the Chinese script. One last thing I want to talk about. When we talk about script reform, the Chinese wasn't the only one that got reformed. All right? Minority languages got reformed too. There were several goals with the non-Chinese-speaking uh, uh, people of the country, mostly on the borderlands. Um, two goals. One, they wanted to take, if you already had an extant script, they said, we're going to take your script. It's like if you were Uyghur and you had your Arabic script or Mongol or Tibetan. Uh, they say, we're going to look into changing your old, you know, this old, feudal, cumbersome script um, into a Latin script. So you'll be similar to Pinyin. All right, we're going to use Latin alphabet uh, to transcribe your language, your speech. 
And then two, I said, if you don't have a pre-existing script, we're going to create one from scratch for you. Because that, you know, you need a script of your own, of, from, for your own language if you're going to become literate. And they're also studying Chinese on the side. By 1957, the Chinese Communist Party the, uh, has created 20 new, brand new minority scripts from scratch for those minority peoples who do not already have their own pre-existing script. As I said, some ethnic groups, however, did already have a script. Let me give you the case study of one that I know quite well from my own research, the Uyghurs, all right, the Muslim Turkic-speaking people who live mostly in Xinjiang province along the oases of the Taklamakan Desert. Now, the Uyghurs in far northwestern China also share a lot of borders with uh, Soviet Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, all those countries, all right, and there are some Uyghurs who live in the neighboring countries of Soviet Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan, and over there, the Soviets had already replaced the old Arabic script that they used for those languages, for those Turkic languages, with Cyrillic. All right, that's the Soviet version of the alphabet, with Cyrillic. And the Chinese came to power after 49, and of course, the model for everything, the starting point for everything, is the Soviets, right? That's the model that you then uh, proceed from and tweak according to your own needs. And so they said, okay, uh, yes, we, we agree with the Soviets. This Arabic script that the Uyghurs have been using is too cumbersome. They have lots of different forms for each letter. There's no capitalization. Uh, let's do what the Soviets did. Let's switch it to Cyrillic Uyghur. We will change Uyghur to Cyrillic so that the Uyghurs can have access to the Cyrillic publications of the Soviet Union. It's actually really important for everyone to learn Cyrillic now because then you can read stuff that, in, uh, that is published in Russian. Okay, so Arabic is abolished in the 1950s, and in 1957, a new Cyrillic script is adopted for the Uyghurs of Xinjiang. Unfortunately, just a few years after that, you have the Sino-Soviet split. And previously, you wanted those Uyghurs to have cross-border ties with the Uyghurs in Soviet Kazakhstan so they could learn Cyrillic and have a, a, a similar script. Now that's a liability, and you don't want those cross-border links. And there was a fear that Uyghurs on both sides of the border will now collaborate with one another. So they said, we're going to repudiate this. We're going to get rid of the Cyrillic script for the Uyghurs and introduce a new Latin script, which will be a little bit closer to Pinyin, although it's still a little bit different than Pinyin. All right. And those who had previously supported using Cyrillic to transcribe Uyghur were now denounced during the Great Leap Forward. And they also said, we're going to get rid of Russian, wor uh, Russian loan words in Uyghur. All right. The words themselves, for instance, to give you an example, in Uyghur, the way that you, or in most of the Turkic languages of Central Asia, the way that you used to be able to say the word China was Kitai. All right, sort of like Cathay Pacific Airlines. Cathay, it's, it's similar to the word Cathay, ultimately deriving from the Khitan people, who when the Mongols conquered the Khitan nomadic people in the 13th century, uh, they said these people have assimilated to Chinese ways so much that the word for Kitan in Mongol, uh, they use for their word for Chinese. Very ironic origin of that word, right? Um, and so Kitai in the Turkic languages meant China. Well, after the Sino-Soviet split, they say that's not okay anymore. We're going to replace Kitai with a Turkified version of the Chinese word for China, which is Zhongguo, right? The central states, Zhongguo. Um, and so in Uyghur, they got rid of all uses of Kitai, and now it's Jungo. All right, in Uyghur, they actually replaced the word for China, uh, Jungo, which is similar to Zhongguo. All right, 
Now, I have this wonderful poster. Anyone, any student who comes to my office during office hours, and admittedly, it's not few. Everyone seems scared of coming to the professor's office hours. Uh, but anyone who comes to my office, I always like to point out a poster from the Cultural Revolution in which I, it, it, it depicts the various minorities of Xinjiang province, including Uyghurs, um, all uniting and loving each other and whatnot, uh, marching lockstep towards socialist uh, development. Um, and it has Chinese, uh, it's a bilingual poster, it has Chinese on top and below it is Uyghur. And this Uyghur is written in the Latin alphabet, a very rare historical artifact. Why is that a rare historical artifact? Because in the reform era, after Mao died and Deng Xiaoping came to power, they said, you know what, we were a little bit authoritarian before, we kept on imposing things on the Uyghurs, maybe we should let them choose what they want. That would be a nice concession in the reform era to show that we're beyond the authoritarianism um, of the Cultural Revolution era. And so in 1982, the Communist Party told Uyghur intellectuals, you can choose what script you want. Two years later, 1984, the Uyghurs voted for Arabic, a modified form of Arabic, similar to what they had before 49, but a little bit different. And they say Cyrillic and Latin were forced on us, uh, and we had no choice in the matter. And so the, the Communist Party agreed to let them institute an Arabic script. And so now you have three generations of Uyghurs who have, be, who have become illiterate in their own language. You had those who grew up prior to 1949, learned uh, a certain form of Arabic script, which would be different than the 1980s version of Arabic script, slightly different. Then you had those, the first eight years, uh, I mean, uh, uh, those who came of age during the communist era would, would have learned the Cyrillic script, and then that was removed for Latin script, and then it was back to a new different form of an Arabic script. All right. Um, language politics is exactly that. It's politics. All right. It's never purely doing something on linguistic grounds. There's a heavy dose of politics, ideology, you might say, in what we do, how we tinker and tamper with our languages. And the, some minority peoples like Uyghur, uh, politics is going to loom even larger than it already does when you're trying to mess around and reform the Chinese script. Already a very touchy issue. All right. Now we're done with cultural reform but we still need to address ethnic reform in Tibet and Xinjiang under the communists in episode 39 of Beyond Huaxia.